0: You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Poetry of Impact podcast. Joining us today is Winston Ibrahim. Winston is the founder and CEO of Hydros, an innovative water filtration startup, and is also co-founder of the Ibrahim Leadership and Dialogue Project in the Middle East which is pioneering efforts to develop a generation of US leaders sensitive to intercultural understanding. And I'm proud to announce that this conversation with Winston is brought to you as part of a partnership between the Poetry of Impact and Nexus. Welcome, Winston.
2: Thanks, Gino. So glad to be here.
1: Yeah, well, I'm so glad to have you. And I feel like this conversation uh potentially has the risk and also the benefit of having a lot of non-sequiturs to it (laughs) (laughs) because you're a very dynamic person and we just uh before we jumped online here to have this podcast conversation we're talking about ice ice baths and food and now all of a sudden this whole dialogue project in the middle east and it's like oh like (laughs) where where do i begin I think the part where I want to begin with is just this fascination with you and water. Mm -hmm. And whether it's ice baths or whether it's your company, Hydros, uh, take us to this moment um, or moments that have inspired you to really embrace water, um, both at a personal relationship level in terms of health, but also... Mm -hmm terms of how you spend the bulk of your commercial life. I want to know it from a personal sort of vacuum perspective, like where was that existential moment?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think there's probably not a singular moment, it's probably a series of moments. And one of the most profound was, you know, just in college, getting kind of large quantities of single-use disposable plastic bottles from kind of our commissary at our dorm and, you know, it was a new building at my school and they were very excited and they were kind of doing this as a convenience and it was, you know, free. And I remember being kind of aghast by, you know, the waste uh, and, you know, started using a filter and and reusable bottles just because it seemed kind of silly that this even kind of existed as a big business. Um, And a few years later, kind of as a miserable investment banker, I I happened to (laughs) stumble into you know, a few people who would become my then co-founders who are working on, you know, what would become Hydros and had this technology for fast water filtration and didn't know where to, you know, go with it or what to do with it. And instantly it kind of struck a nerve and I knew that was, you know, something I had to be focused on. It's just so singularly silly to me that something as kind of ubiquitous as water, which all of us could be empowered to use in a very meaningful way for, you know, very low cost, Has become a big business and that kind of irritates me
1: and what is it that um now all the way on the other side of the pendulum from a commercialization Mm -hmm. to actually personal relationship um, of water and the body um sort of take us to the journey
2: of ice baths as well yeah so you know i've always kind of been a health nut and and that's probably partially why I graduated towards, you know, CPG and, and, you know, hydros as a business. And I've been fortunate to experiment with lots of crazy, you know, health kind of products. And I've had billions of stem cells put in my body. But increasingly what I've come to realize is the simplest tricks are the best tricks. And ice baths have been around for millennia. I guarantee you there were some, you know, primitive ice baths set up in, you know, courts of early civilizations. And the reason it's endured is because it really works. And the science is profound. 20 seconds in an ice bath is the equivalent of three minutes in a cryo chamber, but with a fraction of the waste. And so again, the way my brain kind of goes is, you know, how can we make this cheaper, more scalable and more sustainable for the planet? And it just seems like, you know, if you're using an ice bath, and you're taking care of it, and it's well filtered and cleaned, you don't really have to do anything else. You don't really have to use that many resources, and it has such a profound effect. So it's kind of one of those universal wins, and I really like the kind of fluidity in that situation.
1: Yeah, I don't blame you. I, you know, I always like to, I mean, it, it was you who uh, introduced me to um, you know the company that actually makes ice baths, and I think that was part of our affinity for each other when when uh, we talked a while That's back. That's right. And uh, we talked a while back and I've always thought of it as it feels like um, in three, it's, it's a seven day retreat, silent retreat compressed into like three minutes. Yeah. You know, I mean, in terms of the effect, like it has a silencing centering quality to it. And like you, you named it. It's, it's the cleanest form of energy, right? At a parasympathetic level. It's, it's a stimulus, yet a relaxation moment. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's nuts to have both of those qualities packaged up in such a, you know, a beautiful container as a, like an ice bath.
2: moment. Yeah, it's really incredible. And, and, you know, the research kind of continues to kind of evolve. And very eclective uh, doctor named Dr. Jack Cruz, who has very dense health writings, but he's come up with some interesting theories on kind of the quantum dynamics of cold water exposure and how that can actually have very profound effects on kind of your cellular makeup and even detox you from the effects of EMF radiation in polluted cities and other environments. And so I I definitely feel that effect in kind of the dense electrical jungle of San Francisco. After I get out of my cold tub, I feel
0: way lighter. Now,
1: most people dread cold showers. I mean, what, like, I mean, what would you say to a friend of yours that says, wow, this is all really interesting, Winston, but jeez, I hate cold showers. (laughs) Uh,
2: I I have that conversation very often. Um, You know, it's it's not comfortable the first time you do it, for sure. I think the key thing is to kind of acclimate yourself very carefully. When I first, you know, started kind of getting into cold, I started with 30-second cold showers and then graduated to you know, putting a few bags of ice in my bathtub, and it was only after that looking for kind of you know the next level up that I stumbled across you know, the morozoko Forge team, and you know found their device, and you know thought it was so much better than and cryo. I think part of it is also kind of you know trying to ascribe what outcomes do you want to have, right, and what kind of cost are you willing to kind of pay for that outcome? Uh, because there are a lot of benefits to all these things, but they require some. Measure of discipline. And in the same way that, you know, look, you may not want to go to the gym, you know, three or four times a week, especially, you know, when you're waking up that morning and you really don't want to leave your bed, but you know and can rationalize the benefits of it. You just have to make that leap. And I think it's a similar thing. And like exercise, once you get started, it becomes kind of an addiction. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You almost have to fast forward to the effect.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. What? So, I mean, why is biohacking? I mean, it's sort of a funny term because, it, you know, to some extent, it's compensation, right? I mean, right. to some extent, it's a compensatory response to our culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and w- why is that term growing? I mean, what are people trying to achieve that's absent in their lives? Like, I mean, just sort of take us mm-hmm. to sort of the subtle and maybe not so subtle visible, structural, mechanical features of everyday mm-hmm. cultural life that actually induces us to actually think in these terms or actually behave or that we want to biohack, per se.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's it's a fancy term that kind of covers, you know, some very old tropes in, in society. Uh, you know, nobody wants to get old and, and nobody wants to kind of feel the effects of that age. Yeah. And so if you can, you know, do things that kind of can, you know, mitigate the effects of, you know, that inevitable aging and, and increase your health span, that's very attractive. I think that there's, you know, as with any industry, you know, actors who are in it purely from a commercial sense, and they're looking to kind of take advantage of some of those motives. And I also think that, you know, there's kind of a mix of motives between the different actors in the space. And so, you know, I've seen people with kind of very interesting motives where they just want to kind of increase their health span and they you know want to kind of have more time and more effectiveness to serve you know their broader purpose in the world and you know have more capacity to give back and then I've seen people who are kind of in it just for themselves and and just want to have kind of the perfect kind of physique and you know just enjoy you know that from kind of a more hedonistic perspective and I don't think there's kind of a right or wrong to any of those um, but I definitely think that you know, this is kind of a broader societal trope that's that's only going to gain steam because we have kind of an aging population that, you know, doesn't want to age. And, you know, some of these techniques are very effective. And I think there's some profound, you know, kind of societal discussions to see what happens when, you know, you have a certain cohort that can access these things from a financial perspective. And what does that do in bifurcating society even further? So
1: you talk about ageism, you talk about hedonism, when I get an ice bath, for me, it's like how it makes me feel.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Honestly, I give two shits whether I'm going to live until 90, <laughs> like, I mean, to me, really, that, like, I want to feel while I'm going through life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, mm-hmm. You know, because to me, when I was a- asking that question, it's like, I think that there's a certain amount of numbness built into sort of the postmodern frenetic mm-hmm. world. That people subconsciously are aware of, but they don't know how to sort of really respond or create wellness out of that vacuum. That's right. And so I went through a series of um, really difficult times with some family health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and just so I can balance my psyche and I wasn't feeling well. I was lost, I was not centered, and just had this sort of nauseating feeling almost every time mm-hmm. I was waking up, jumping in the ice bath and and I felt alive again. Exactly. And, exactly, and I didn't have to go do bungee jumping. I didn't have to go climb mountains. <laughs> I didn't have to be the fastest skier down, you know, Squaw Valley. Mm-hmm. It was all, like, it all did it for me without an ounce of will. I just sat, I just sit in this cold water. So, mm-hmm. so I mean, you're a technologist, you're, you're a capitalist, you're living in San Francisco, which to me is the bastion of like freneticness in terms of, <laughs> um, I mean, sort of expand on, on that notion of feeling. I mean, do you really think that, um, you know, that, that people are looking to feel as a part
2: of being in the world? Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You know, I think technology is fantastic and, you know, enables so much in modern civilization, but it can be very disconnecting not just from kind of the sense of social separation, but also from the self to the body. And if you're just staring at a screen all day and you're not connected to your body, it really is kind of a negative impact on so many things. So I think you're absolutely right. That's probably an underlying kind of motivation. And certainly to the point earlier, escaping technology, doing these kind of low tech, but very effective types of health interventions the things that have been around for thousands of years, whether they're saunas or forest bathing or just getting into very cold water. Those are the best things that I've ever found. And they've replaced, you know, all these, you know, weird, expensive gadgets.
1: So, I mean, this used to be like the domain of like hippies and bohos and now, (laughs) you know, sort of the uh, primarily, you know, the bro scene of uh, the tech world, is Mm -hmm. sort of adapting some of these boho sort of hippie uh projects i mean where like i mean where does that come from you think
2: yeah so i think it comes from kind of this prevailing sense of stress and disconnection created by modern life and also partially from kind of a center of you know competitiveness right i think there's kind of a broad understanding particularly in silicon valley where people are open-minded maybe then you know more traditional centers of business like new york uh, about kind of thinking outside the box for different solutions. And so people have just observed, you know, getting serious about your health and getting serious about mindfulness will have net positive impacts on your work. And you'll end up being able to, you know, generate more outcomes. So I think it's a combination of those different overlapping motivations and probably at different times for different people, the same motivations apply.
1: Yeah. Now, now speaking of feelings, I want to... Um chart back in I want to chart backwards a little bit um mm-hmm. you talked about the miserable years of being an investment banker so <laughs> you're obviously feeling uh you felt enough to know that that's not who you wanted to be Can can you walk us through what was happening then and was, was that a sort of a family legacy moment where like your family is in the world of traditional reductionist finance, mm-hmm. and you're like this this stuff's just putting me to sleep it's making me <laughs>
2: Uh, very much on point uh, Gino so so my dad you know was a traditional you know financier and you know came here as an immigrant worked his way up the corporate ladder ran a few major financial services firms and was running a publicly traded company on the New York Stock Exchange at the time and and you know uh not approving of my career path one of being a spy uh, and you know forced me into investment banking uh much to my you know chagrin and and you know I was able to kind of uh endure it for a while, but it really felt kind of disconnecting. And it's it's you know the pace of it was fantastic for somebody like me. I really enjoyed the pace, but kind of the rote nature of the work and the kind of hierarchical, you know, strictures just seemed kind of intuitively off. And it really didn't kind of have anything to do with kind of my you know passion subjects of health and wellness. Uh, And when I bumped into the two gentlemen who had become my co-founders at Hydros, it just clicked very quickly, and I I just had to jump for it.
1: Yeah. And then, I mean, how has that been? Uh, so when you go back and share
2: your, your passion projects with your dad now, I mean, how does that go over? So, uh, you know, originally it wasn't going over well, uh, and subsequently it's become much, much better, uh, you know, alongside Hydros and in the process of kind of developing our products. I got involved in investing in a lot of health and wellness businesses, a lot of which did extremely well and had, you know, very generous exits and and nothing kind of is, you know, as good as, you know, money in the bank from, you know, an exit to prove your father wrong. Um, And he's recently been dealing with some health challenges and, you know, after some reluctance, embraced some of the tenets of kind of these health practices and, and much to his surprise found that he was able to make a very quick and, relatively painless recovery.
1: So do you feel like a lot of what you're doing on the investment side is merely an extension of what you're interested on it at personally? Like, it, it, you, know, <laughs> it, you know, right? I mean, it's sort of like, it's sort of easy right. to stay aligned now, as opposed to going, leaving the house. And it's like, oh, this is me over here. And now I'm doing something else. It's mm-hmm. It's as if almost when Winston wakes up, to when he goes to sleep, to when he's dreaming. does it feel like a coherent whole now?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It feels very coherent. Uh, you're absolutely right, you know very focused on kind of being an activist investor, somebody who can really kind of lend a hand, get in the trenches, help you know to the extent I can with you know business operations as much as you know kind of strategic advice and you know just being a purveyor of capital. Uh, So we're very specific about the things that we get involved with and and really want them to be things that kind of add value and can scale and, you know, impact as many people as possible, but kind of with a lens, at least from my perspective, on kind of health and wellness and things that are a little bit more cutting edge, things that other people wouldn't necessarily touch because they think they're too early or out there, but grounded in kind of reality. So...
1: How do you know when like you're wanted for more than just the check? Like, I mean, how do you do that? I mean, is that an mm-hmm. explicit like solicitation where you say, hey, look, I'm very interested, but I also am interested in doing this as a part of my contribution or do you wait for it to come to you or is there some sort of middle ground? I'm sort of curious on how how you sort of play out that process.
2: Yeah. So uh, I've definitely kind of been in all of those camps I think that the best situations are the ones that have just kind of organically come to me. Uh, And, you know, that's kind of really fantastic and beautiful. And so, you know, this kind of medical practice that we helped get involved with and launch BioReset Medical, that was pure serendipity. I happened to, you know, have been in a car accident and, you know, had a hard to heal surgical scar and, and nobody could do anything. And I. Somehow got a referral to this guy who sounded like he was insane and working out of a tiny closet with Star Wars figurines at the time. And, and mm-hmm. he did for me in 20 minutes what two years of physical therapy couldn't do. And, and you know, we just became friends and and then subsequently business partners. And, and now he's scaled dramatically. He's buying a $5 million building in Miami this week.
1: Oh, my gosh. And, and he's probably accepting Bitcoin since he's down in Miami. <laughs>
2: yeah, he's been open to that for a few years.
1: So I mean, take me through what uh, you said. Bioreset was that. Bioreset
2: the- Medical is the name of the company.
1: And um, so I guess in general, that's like regenerative medicine. I mean, what's involved with that? I'm curious on what's involved. with in
2: Yeah. So uh, you know, from a practical perspective, it's mostly kind of functional IVs, so lots of different nutrients. Uh, you know, after kind of a very customized, you know, assessment and you know, having a protocol created by the doctor himself. Uh, And, you know, everything from kind of generalized anti-aging to kind of very specific kind of issues, you know, in somebody's body. So he's treated everybody from, you know, PTSD victims to people who had, you know, paralysis. And, and, you know, I won't say he was able to turn, you know, some of those people into kind of Olympic athletes, but he was able to get some people to walk with a walker who were otherwise paralyzed for years.
0: Mm.
2: So very hyper-specific stuff. Uh, very devoted doctor, uh, certainly, you know, wants to make a thriving business, but but I've never seen somebody kind of go out of his way so much for his clients to the point where he is constantly late because he will refuse to leave a client who is in pain uh, if he thinks there's anything else that he can do for them. His most pioneering procedure is called a hydrodissection, where he'll go into your kind of body specific area with kind of trauma and clean it up, break apart scar tissue, unclog trapped nerves. With a tiny needle, uh, and he's probably one of the top five people in the world who can do that.
1: Wow, so fascinating. Um, I see. I mean, it really is fascinating. I mean, how do you? Uh, so, I mean, you're doing a lot, right? Um, I mean, <laughs> you, know, you you know, you're doing a couple ice baths a day. You're probably <laughs> eat of, like how like you are uh, taking in your food on a day to day basis. You're running this company, Hydros. And now all of a sudden, you know, it's come to my attention that you're leading, uh, you know, this dialogue project with uh, the Middle East, which is like an intractable, which at least on the surface, is mm-hmm. like an intractable sort of issue. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious on, and, and I mean, not from a Barnes and Noble high achievement way of thinking about this, but I mean, how do you sort of manage both what seems like all these different verticals, and yet probably has some semblance of some uh, Winston essence and that that's a part of them all, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I think, you know, not, not all of them were kind of started at once or kind of sure. me in full gear in them all at once. So the Ibrahim Leadership and Dialogue Project, I actually started, oh man, all the way back in 2008, uh, in college mm-hmm. and, and I ran it kind of very, you know, full time for three years, basically two years, you know, concurrently with doing investment banking, but it was basically my second job. And now we have an executive director uh, who came in in like 2012 and and he does most of the day-to-day. And so I'm relatively hands-off, kind of the foundation was built. uh, But I think, you know, it's kind of a function of delegation and kind of, you know, being able to kind of jump and prioritize for where the kind of spinning plates are that are about to fall off the totem pole, which which requires some practice and, and everybody drops a few plates. And it's just a matter of, you know, not dropping too many, so that you stay in the game.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, how like w- when you talk about managing plates and have a lot of different projects and being an activist activist investor, I'm guessing that distributing choice making and leadership is a part of the reflection process, right? It's like oh, definitely. You know, I need to move. You know, I don't want these projects dependent on me. I mm-hmm. want potentially influenced positively by me, but not dependent. Um, on me. So we see, I mean, can you walk us through how you navigate that process, whether it's with Hydros or company invests
2: in? Yeah. So I think, you know, it's kind of about what the main focus kind of is and what are the things that kind of need me the most and most of my attention. And, And that's, you know, for the moment, absolutely Hydros. Uh, you know, we're at a critical stage. And and so I had to be very kind of laser focused on that. Uh, And, you know, kind of really thinking carefully about delegation. And so even inside, you know, Hydro okay. You know, where are areas that I can kind of bring people in or charge people who are already there with kind of meaningful responsibility where, you know, they will kind of be able to kind of effectively execute, you know within certain parameters. And not need to be you know handheld, and I think you know that's how I kind of approach a lot of these situations. I'm I'm not the type of person who enjoys micromanaging. I can and I will if it's if it's necessary, but I prefer to have people at all levels who can kind of pick up the ball and run with it, and then you know really only kind of call me when when things are kind of burning down or they really need my input.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where so where are you guys currently with I mean your um, project Hydros?
2: Yeah, so, you know, this is kind of been a very long-term venture, uh, you know, started with a prototype and a few co-founders, you know, a year or two after college, after putting in investment banking, that product, uh, you know, did very well financially from some metrics, but was unscalable from others. Uh, and so we basically had to reformulate the entire business. My co-founders left, had to hire a pro team, uh, and we soft-launched the products, our brand new products after four years of development in 2019. And Soft tested it, and now we're kind of getting ready for scale. We're about to launch a brand new product uh, in about four weeks. It's going to be a glass version of our small pitcher. And I think you know the real goal for us is to kind of go into mass market retail where most of this category lives, and really demonstrate that we can kind of sell very well against the traditional mass market competitors. And we use about half or less the plastic of any of these guys. We just started a national recycling program. So we really want to kind of own this you know, vertical of being the most sustainable, the best for you, but also the most scalable. And I think there's a tension between all of those things to a degree. But really, scale is the thing that we want to build with, because at the end of the day, if the traditional players in the marketplace were doing such a great job, then people wouldn't be consuming billions of dollars worth of single-use plastic bottles every year.
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm what it goes through your heart when like you, when like you are walking the beach and see plastics on beaches or you're swimming and uh, a plastic bag just wrapped around, you know, a branch uh, along the, uh, you know. Yeah. uh,
2: You know, strong anger is probably an understatement and, and just kind of lack of understanding because it, it just seems like such a, silly paradigm right it's it's a bad financial decision it's a bad environmental decision it's it's like bad everything and and the only thing it has to go for it is is you know convenience and you know i think that's kind of why a lot of these things have been winning there's a seminal you know piece of literature that you've probably you know been familiar with or heard of called the lazy environmentalist which shows that you know lots of people will say great things about what they want to do for the environment push comes to shove they're going to do the easiest thing and, and that very much guided our philosophy in the creation of Hydros. We decided, okay, we have to be easy and quick and relatively cheap if we're going to make an impact in this problem. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a sense of disappointment. You know, I think people have to kind of think beyond kind of their immediate, you know, five-second gratification. And I think it's a testament to kind of the society we live in pressures people to make those types of choices.
1: Sure, sure, sure. And I mean, you know, it, is it a luxury? Um, it, so, is it a luxury to um, to be long on time? Um, just do you, like, you have to have you have to have a certain amount of financial capacity yep. to be long on time. Um, mm-hmm. um, so, I wonder how much of it is sort of connected to sort of the larger the larger sort of financial distress and deprivation of most members of, of mm-hmm. this understanding.
2: I, I definitely think that's a factor. Uh, at the same time, I think there's there's a considerable number of people who can make better choices and who who don't. And then if you look at the math, particularly in something like single-use plastic bottles, the average American family of you know four will spend something like, depending on where they're buying this, right, between you know six hundred and thousand dollars a year, right, on single-use plastic bottles. You could get which which are unregulated, by the way. Uh, it's basically a hose into a plastic. <laughs> from you know, just like a garden hose or something like that. It's, it's not even certified in the way that we have to certify our filters with a third-party lab. So for $40 a year, you could get you know way better quality from hydrants mm-hmm. with a fraction of the environmental cost without doing anything else.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So that's the solution we really want to kind of present. I think part of it too is kind of the evolving ethos in society where a lot of these issues are only now becoming kind of prescient enough in kind of broader zeitgeist and I think that's kind of picking up some waves especially if you look at you know Europe banning single-use plastic major companies banning single-use plastic and California being on the verge of making single-use plastic illegal
0: Hmm.
1: where is there um as a result of being in you know I met you through Nexus which has uh, you know a tremendous network right I mean Mm -hmm. five six thousand Um, people that are all sort of tied in this common mission of using um, resources um, impactfully and thoughtfully. Um, When people step into Winston sort of network, uh, how have you seen sort of the network effect work with all of the different um, uh, (laughs) you got going on, right? Because a lot of these are extensions of you in terms of Mm -hmm. what you're involved in. Uh, whether the future of work, the future of wellness and health um, and so forth. And I'm just wondering where, like, have you seen um, the nodes within the networks of the different projects Mm -hmm. actually being able to sort of reinforce each other and actually sort of take on a life of their own?
2: Yeah. um, There's, there's too many examples to count. Uh, Mm -hmm. A very early lesson to me in kind of the power of, you know, the network and and kind of how interconnected the world could be in very subconscious ways uh, happened. 2011, I was asked to join the board of directors of the Interfaith Youth Corps in Chicago uh, because of my work with the Ibrahim Leadership and Dialogue Project. And I got invited to a meeting at the Aspen Institute with Walter Isaacson, uh, who proceeded to put me on the spot as the youngest, I think I was 20 years old at the time, And, and somebody came up to me afterwards and, you know, enjoyed kind of the repartee that I had with Walter and invited me to this, you know, Muslim professionals gathering. And I went to it out of curiosity. And I happened to meet this, you know, woman at the time uh, who was my age at the time, Shazi Bistram, who had founded the baby food company in her dorm in New York, uh, which a few years later she sold to Danone for half a billion dollars. And we became late stage investors in that company and made an 80% return in you know, about 10 months just backstopping part of that transaction. And she joined my board of directors and she's been on my board of directors of Hydros ever since. So, so that's probably the best story to me. That's a beautiful story.
1: That's a beautiful story. Well, and I mean, what was it like to meet Walter Isaacson? I mean, I see. I'm just, <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs>
2: You know, uh, a little terrifying when, you know, you're you're the youngest person in the room by a good, you know, 10 years, and he's sitting right next to you, and in the middle of, you know, a conversation, he turns to you and says, what do you think? (laughs) Uh, And his book on jobs had just come out, which which I had read along with everybody else at the time, Uh, so very intimidating, but, you know, man, what a sharp guy, Uh, you know, just incredibly razor sharp. Do you actually remember what the question and your
1: response was?
2: I I don't. I I was just terrified. I think I was spitballing whatever came out of my way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you have, um, like, I mean, what do you do to sort of make sense and sort of share your knowledge beyond just sort of like this knowledge stays in Winston's head or how, like, I mean where do you go from here on your So you're back 40, right? I mean, so you're, you know, on your back 40 starting to come up and
0: mm-hmm.
1: like, I mean, how do you think of this next chapter or this next back half compared to your first half in terms of the person that, um, that you are now versus who you would like to be or working toward?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think kind of the biggest consideration, you know, for me, for that is how to kind of continually be able to kind of scale. You know the work that I'm doing, and think about kind of the impact that could be made. Uh, you know, certainly, kind of mentoring people and helping people has become kind of a little bit more of a focus. Uh, it's something that you know I'm very engaged with with the Morizoco team. They're you know a company that I help pro bono just because I love their mission and you know I love what they're doing. So I've kind of been more thoughtful in recent you know years about okay, not just focusing on kind of you know purely commercial kind of opportunities either as an investor or as an entrepreneur, but also thinking about how can I give back. Obviously it has to be selective. I would like to do, you know, more of those sorts of things. Uh, But to me, it's really thinking about how I can kind of put in place more kind of delegation and more processes to kind of really scale, you know, impact both as an entrepreneur inside Hydros and some of these other ventures and as an investor. And I think that's going to be kind of a set of problems that's going to absorb me for the next year or two. Mm
1: What does good mentorship, I, I've been thinking about this myself too uh, in terms of a little bit in terms of like mentoring, I mean, what does good mentoring feel like to you and look like to, to you? Like, I mean, how do you know it's not Winston's ego that thinks that he's like, oh, I'm just offering this uh, person just some amazing advice. Like, I mean, how do you <laughs> sort of know, like, yeah. like, at some point I know, like, for instance, me, I feel like if I'm in a mentoring situation, that it's also a discovery process just as much Mm -hmm. for me as it is for the other Mm -hmm. person. Yeah. Uh, And and while it may not come across like that for the other person because maybe of an Mm -hmm. age difference or a difference, I think if I'm honest with myself, it's sort of like a discovery
2: while I'm sharing it, like, wow, I did Right. Absolutely. No, you know, that's the old kind of refrain, right? You know, teaching is one of the best learning experiences ever. Um, I, I think I kind of approach it in the way that I would approach kind of getting in bed with somebody from a pure you know business perspective which kind of the ultimate you know factor is always is there a good chemical fit right does it feel right? Is there kind of alignment you know from a vision perspective is this somebody you kind of intuitively trust uh, and, and if that's there and that clicks, then, you know, I feel very comfortable kind of following my intuition uh, and it hasn't really clicked, you know, very often. And so the few times that it does click, I'm I'm ready to kind of make a move. Uh, I think kind of a crux of, you know, and this might sound cliche, but I think, you know, it's very important is kind of brutal honesty in that relationship, right? Especially if you're talking to an entrepreneur who may be kind of very excited about a vision, right? And, and this is actually something that I learned through my interactions with you know, Shazi, who I, you know, described meeting to you, you know, earlier, uh, she's always been incredibly brutally honest with me about anything and everything, uh, you know, related to hydros or any plans that we were, you know, working on. And, and that's the quality that I very much appreciate. At, uh, and, and, you know, the point where we've gotten into fights before, uh, you know, pretty, pretty nasty fights sometimes, at least in, in the words, but, you know, it's never harmed the relationship just because, you know, there was that level of kind of integrity and trust. And so I think you know, that's kind of incumbent on both sides of that, you know, mentor-mentee relationship.
1: Mm. I think of it, I, I don't know if this ever happened to you, but you know, I was highly influenced by what older people were sharing with me when I was like in the late teens, early twenties. And part of it is because I felt like, um, you know I was Huck Finn and just like <laughs> I was just I sailing in a boat just down the Mississippi, just sort of looking for somewhere to land to some extent, but I remember sharing with somebody that I was really excited about uh, being a city planner. Mm -hmm. And I remember this person's response and I can still feel it in my bones, you know, 25 plus years later. It's like, why would you do that? There's no money. (laughs) money And it's, it's as if it was told to me yesterday and I can feel, I can just hear that. And I was now being what that person's age is when he was sharing with me at that time, it's like, I try to be ridiculously conscious of what I'm sharing just at a vibrational level. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Know, I just, you know, um, I don't know, you know, now, now looking back and seeing enough rodeos of how people choose their adult lives to some extent or how they're faded. And now looking back, this person was a very unhappy banker. I just didn't know it when I was <laughs> old. I know it now in my mid forties, because, you know, now, now, you know, you've seen enough patterns and you sort of see how people end up playing out their lives and you can see frustration Mm -hmm. um, or complaining and victimhood and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about um, your awareness around that, or if that happened to you as well, both on a positive side too. And vice versa, Mm -hmm. huge influences that really encouraged me when I was lost to really keep just chasing. What just makes you feel alive? And I mean, and it will emerge for you.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I've definitely, you know, kind of experienced that, you know, multiple times, right? Especially kind of in, you know, the early days, you know, of Hydros or, you know, when say my co-founders left and we were building kind of, you know, the company back from scratch. And uh, it's another board member of mine, this, you know, gentleman who's also been friends with us and involved on our board for many, many years, Alan Sheriff, who had a very collective career in finance. Ran IBD at Credit Suisse First Boston. Retired. Got bored after three months. Started another company, which became the number one IPO bake-off firm in the country. And, and you know, still kind of hard at it. And you know, kind of in the middle of this period of doubt of, gee, okay, is this going to work? We have to do so many things. I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. He sat me down and said, you know, has anything kind of changed about the broader business plan, or your passion for the subject matter, or kind of the state of the problem? And then what are kind of the problems that you're facing now? Are these kind of superable problems that are just a question of kind of aligning some capital and some expertise and you know giving it some time to marinate? Or is it, you know, kind of a structural insolvable? Is it never going to get solved? And, you know, thinking through that process led me to, you know, conclude, okay, you know, these are temporary growing pains and and if we're persistent and we kind of double down, we're probably going to make it through. And, and that was a really great exercise, just kind of having somebody rationalize, you know, that process and, you know, really kind of saved me in that moment.
1: That's amazing guidance. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like, that's priceless. Yep. Absolutely priceless. Well, that's a much different experience than I had, been in my life. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh-
1: Well, uh, Winston, is there anything uh, that we haven't covered that, uh, you know, that just naturally is coming up inside of you that that you'd like to share with your audience in terms of some of these topics that we've covered um, or something that we didn't cover, but um, like I said, it's sort of brewing
2: brewing inside of you. Yeah. You know, I think something that's really been brewing for a while is kind of, you know, kind of thinking about the starch nature of modern life and and how people are kind of fit into boxes and they let themselves be fit into boxes and aren't their authentic selves and then end up having regrets many years later for not having taken that chance or not having expressed themselves. And I would say that, you know, to anybody who has any kind of doubts, kind of take some steps. And obviously it's a privilege for some people to be able to act on these things to a greater extent very quickly or not, but just to take some steps and start to bring some of these, you know, kind of aspirations and desires and passions into the world, right? Because, you know, you only get to live once and and you're not going to want to have a situation where you're 90 and you didn't do so many things and you regret them all. So really just kind of, you know, bring in that positive vibration and start to do what you can and don't get discouraged if you're not all the way there because, you know, that journey is unique and it's going to be all the more beautiful for having kind of had to go through the fire a little bit.
1: Well, thank you, Winston. And where can uh, people learn more about you?
2: Thank you so much, Gino. Uh, People can find out more about me on hydroslife.com and uh, on Medium on uh, the page for Winston Ibrahim. I have a whole coterie of articles. Thanks so much for joining us today, Winston. Thanks so much, Gino.
0: Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.